Welcome to Burke's After Dark, where conversations about the deepest disturbances in existence are overheard. I'm your host, Anna D'Souza, a PhD student at McGill's School of Religious Studies. Tonight's conversant is my colleague, Lucas, and tonight's conversation focuses on Jacques Derrida, identity and community. Keep your whiskey close and your safety blanket closer. Okay, now now, now you can continue talking. <laughs> I'll just continue talking when yeah. I say, okay. You're in a weird corner of philosophy. Um, yeah, it's like, um, I, I feel like someone new is in the room and I need to fill them <laughs> in. I can't just continue. But you can. Um, okay. Yeah, so, because I was just saying how I... Um, really like Professor uh, Hamza, but I can't, uh, like, I won't take any new classes with him because he's just very much not in my field. Mm. And you suggested Professor Sharma. Sharma? Yes, because he's I'm more into, Sharma. yes. He's into um, philosophy at all. That's right. And, like, I know what Vaita Vedanta, like, broad strokes and, yeah. and everything. And, yes, I'm into philosophy and religion, but I'm in this weird corner of philosophy that takes poetry very seriously. Because, hmm. um, yeah, so I'm working on Jacques Derrida, and he's very easily mistaken to be a philosopher of language. Like, his first his first work was called On, on the Grammatology, uh-huh. and he has this whole philosophy about writing and he talks about writing before the letter and how there's something like very fundamental about what humans do that is closer to writing than it is to the logos. Um, like I, in the like, uncreated words? It's, it's so obscure. No, in the... In the basic sense of like the Greeks, so that word means word. It also means reason, right? So the logos is both like the actual words that you speak into the world and the reasoning that puts them together. It's language, right? Uh, Language and logic. And traditionally in the West, we think of like, oh, what's a human? The human is a rational animal, Mm -hmm. right? It's the logo, like uh, logo is logo. My Greek is not great. Um, animal and they and there's a whole tradition in the history of western philosophy of juxtaposing the spoken word versus the written word and on one hand you want to talk badly of written words because usually especially in antiquity they mostly it mostly had to do with um, memory aid. Like, if you really understand something, you can talk about it. You don't need to read it somewhere, and you're not going to write it somewhere. But on the other hand, you also had this spiritualized version of written words being like, oh, it has to be written in your heart. Yeah. And that's when you really understand it. And Dehida kind of like deconstructs that difference between the spoken word and the written word. Um, and like I said, it's a weird corner of philosophy. Um, but it comes into the deconstruction of like what's transcendent and what's immanent. Okay. And 
my reading of it, because I don't want to say like this is what the Hida says, uh, but my reading of it is that he's getting at the fact that humans project and externalize our ideas into things, and those things become real for us. Mm-hmm. Um, which is very close to like the whole thing of phenomenology in general. And so in that sense, like a poem, like you can ask like, what's the meaning of the poem? And there's always the question of like, yeah, there's the intention of the author and everything, but there's also our reading of it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it has a life of its own that is much bigger than just the supposed reasoning of the author and also whatever reading I give to it, it's like the, the writing becomes something in itself. And going back to like, however that could relate to Indian philosophy, which is absolutely not my field. Um, <laughs> but I can very much picture a kind of like, what would it look like to think Indian philosophy and like Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta, while taking the poetry which is it is based on right the, the Upanishads mostly like uh, seriously as poetry mm. and what does it mean to take poetry seriously in its own terms mm. and and by doing that you kind of question like is there even a difference between poetry and philosophy right and maybe the answer is yes but like we need to think about what that difference is and and how can we use a poem to design like a metaphysics of this is how the universe works? Anyways. Do you know Lucretius? Huh? Lucretius. Um, he's the Epicurean poet. His Dereum Natura. Um, I've I've heard those words. Oh, okay. Um. So Lucretius. <laughs> so in a former life, I was a classic student. Okay. Um, and Lucretius is this lovely fellow who um he wrote a poem he worked in late antiquity yes um and he wrote in latin and he was an epicurean and they had an atomic theory of the universe mm-hmm. they're the guys that came up with atoms um but non yeah it's slightly different than the way we think of them now but more in just like that there is indivisible parts at the bottom yes um of reality and they imagine that the universe as we know it started when all of these atoms are in motion mm-hmm. um, and all of them are moving and then one of them suddenly out of nowhere swerved mm-hmm. and hit another one yes. and then that created that started like the chain reaction that led to like things becoming things yes and like atoms being coming grouped and stuff like that so that's like the their atomic like theory of creation almost or like theory of like how real why reality is the way it is <clears throat> and so Lucretius wrote a poem about it. Okay. And that's how and he like explains this atomic theory, but mm-hmm. in verse. Okay. And in Latin, which is fun, because <laughs> like most of like all the pretty poetry is in Greek. Nice. And so, like, when you get some in Latin, I don't know. I always preferred Latin because Latin is much nicer to me than Greek. Greek kind of hates me. Um so I was like, oh, you can have really cool philosophical poetry. And even in Latin. Yep. And it was kind of like, it's not very big either. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. 
Um, so you, yeah, it's not definitely earlier than Derrida, though. Please, <laughs> no, like that. That is interesting, and there's there's something to what Derrida does that is mostly. Um, Like I was, so I'm mostly working with this one book, which is called Jacques Derrida. It's written by um, Bennington. And it's kind of like a secondary literature summary of Derrida's like life work, but kind of early, like he was still alive when it was written. Mm. And Derrida himself read it and responded to it. And what I'm looking to write my thesis on is going to be on that response. And I'll get to that later, I guess. But something Bennington says about the Hida is that it's not wrong to say that he's not saying anything new. Because mm. like a lot of what he's doing is just going back into things that were there in the past that we we might have brushed aside. Yeah, or we don't might use have, anymore. Yeah, or we have like covered them up in a way that forgets that they were essential to ha- the way we think about things today mm. and something I see that I don't think I, I don't know if the Hida deals with it specifically but something I see which is like very central to my own kind of research and interest and like life is the very line we drew between like what's theology and what's philosophy yeah. Right? Which is kind of has to do with the whole what's philosophy and what's poetry in a way, because, you know, theology in a way takes like epics and poems and metaphors and stories and, you know, biographies very seriously and philosophizes mm-hmm. with them. Um, and that's something that especially Plato did a lot that's like if you read plato as a theologian it's it's absolutely coherent right like he talks about the gods all the time Mm. he thought like when he's talking about truth and justice and whatnot it has it always has to do with the gods and socrates dies because he was obeying you know the oracle of apollos Mm. so anyways that's just to forgot why I got there. Um, <laughs> That's okay. Oh, no, yes, because you're talking about Lucretius and, you know, the whole theory of the atoms and everything. And, like, when you read Plato and you see, like, his theory of the forms, right, which we take very seriously, we're like, what's Plato about? Theory of the forms. Yeah. It's in this, like, dialogue where he's just kind of telling a story he's like oh let's let's pretend that this is like this is how the world is and it's it's in the realm of make-believe right he he is writing myth and he's also like aware of you know all of greek thought and like homer and things like that and he's kind of he has those things in mind that as he's saying whatever he's saying and it's like, to what extent did his students take what he was saying literally? Mm. And, you know, did he have the authority to talk like that in any way? Um, but also philosophy then took him extremely literally. 
yeah. right? You can't, you can't understand Christianity without, without Platonic, Platonic yeah. philosophy. And, but it's all kind of there in that line in between of, is this philosophy, is this science, is this poetry that the texts themselves don't decide that for us, we mm -hmm. decide it for the text. That's true. Damn, I've been thinking about this more recently because my, like I do religious studies. I think I do religious studies at least most of the time. <laughs> what does it even mean? <laughs> right? I, like, yes. I think I do stuff more on like the human sciences side of the spectrum. Okay. Right, like I would see myself more and like I do more socio-legal studies and I'm, but I'm looking at the way that people are religious. And like the things, but I'm more focused on things they do and the way that that interacts with the state and how does this category of religion, like mm -hmm. how does it lift? Mm -hmm. um, so like less what people mean when they use the words and more like how does this category affect what people do and like the right. parameters of what's possible right? or not possible, licit, like what's okay to do and what's not. Um, which is a different question than what's possible. What's possible is not the same thing as what's permissible in the eyes of law. Um, but, like, I think I do religious studies most of the time. Um, but I also, like, I talk about the public sphere, whatever that is, um, a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and, like, so how does religion fit into publicness? Mm -hmm. And how do those things intersect? And... Uh, the guy I'm dating right now is working on the same kind of stuff, but in a theology department. Okay. Um, and so it's kind of like, in my head, I've got an idea of what I think the difference is between what I do and what he does. <laughs> but he's got a totally different idea of what the difference is between what we do is. And he sees like a lot fewer differences. Because mm. um, he does take a very like an outsider perspective. Right. And all that kind of stuff. He doesn't talk about it from like within the tradition very much. Yeah. Um, which is like to me, that's like my kind of like touchstone for like, okay, when am I when is the theology and when is it right religious studies? It's like am I speaking from within a tradition or am I speaking from outside of a tradition? Can I whether or not I can be outside of a tradition mm -hmm. is kind of a complicated question. Um <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. And I think I've been, and I have other friends that are trying to convince me to do more like theologically bent stuff towards mm -hmm. like my own like Christian Roman Catholic kind of stuff. Right. And yeah, I think it's definitely, there definitely is a lot of like what we think, what we bring to the table and like what we think we're doing, which isn't always the same things that we're actually doing. Right. Um, which, yeah, I don't know. I am also, I'm, I'm normally deeply suspicious of authorial intent. Of a what? Uh, like the author's intent. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, because I think that that, like, what you think you're doing when you're writing or producing a thing um, is, like, tertiary. It's not even, like, secondary. It's, like, way down there in terms of, like, what actually happens, mm -hmm. like, 
to say nothing of like how anybody else experiences it. And it's like, does the thing have existence besides mm-hmm. the way people experience it? Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe can we can we talk about it? That was like my I, the question I really care about. I'm like, okay, if, mm-hmm. if something exists but I can't talk about it, I don't really care. <laughs> like, cool, that's nice. Moving on now. Yeah. Right. And it's mm-hmm. like, but then we're really talking about what can we talk about, which is not really the same question as like pure like metaphysics like does it exist what i'm going to say may may come off a bit salty um, <laughs> that's all right i love salt but <laughs> like that's how we raise children right hmm. we tell them like we ask them what is questions and hmm. they learn what is answers right and that's the that's what you know in philosophy you call an essence right so we have this essentialist kind of frame of thinking like in in that specific way i defined that when you're trying to understand something what you're looking for is the answer to the what is question right so which is also why i mean religious studies is such a difficult thing because it's like what is religion yeah and to me like i i can't deal with it without just looking at the history of it i'm like yeah the history of it is that you have people in in whatever it is we call the west um the north atlantic thank you charles yes and (laughs) and who you know have a notion of christianity and christianity fits a very specific box in relationship to other things like philosophy and science and politics Mm -hmm. which you know we managed to compartmentalize those things and they were like what is christianity christianity is a religion so we know what religion is what is religion it's what christianity is Uh and then we just went outside looking for other people's version of christianity right and that's the history of religious studies and then we realized that oh you know, other religions are other religions, but then we don't know what religion is anymore, and that's where we are. Yeah. Right. Um, and I had more things to say, and I forgot where, where I was going. <laughs> that's um, okay. The what were you saying before? Ah, the well. I... The tension between, like, does the text exist? Oh, yeah. Like, what is that? And I don't really care if it exists or not. Right. Yes, the, the whole existing. Talk, can I talk about it is my question. Yes. And, like, I think that that gets at it because it's, like, you know, back all the way to, like, Plato again, like, in the theory of forms. Like, Plato is basically saying, yes, those things exist right like so when we say religion there's there's religion out there there's a pure form of religion in the sky (laughs) and if you truly understand that you're going to be the master scholar of religion and it's terrifying it's terrifying (laughs) and and like so if i i'm gonna jump start into like my what my research is and like what kind of a history of like what is the Hida about to start with and I think the relevant place to start is with Kant Immanuel Kant 
because he had his critique of of reason, right? He he basically looks at the history of metaphysics before him, which is you know this whole idea that we are magically endowed with access into the ultimate truths of the of reality. And if you just sit down and think hard enough through propositional statements, you're going to get there and you can, you know, give you your... from your armchair. Yes, from your armchair, <laughs> with just your brain, you're going to just explain how the universe works. And, you know, if we think, like, I come from theology, so I, I keep going back to Christianity. Um, and, like... You know, Thomas Aquinas is like the perfect example of that, right? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, I sat down long enough and now here's everything out. there is to know about theology. And we take him seriously. I think right? the is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> like, in terms of like what he thought he was doing, like he was pretty good at He's it. awesome. He, he is awesome. Like, and he's, he, like, we should understand Aquinas, right? Mm-hmm. But the thing that Kant does is say, who do you think you are, right? Yeah. He he, he kind of gets at there are limits to the human mind. There's things that basically the, he, he draws a line between what he calls phenomenon, like things as they appear to us, and noumenon, which is like the things as they are in themselves. And he says, all that you ever deal with are things appearing to you. You can't, you can't be so objective as to erase the fact that you are a subject. Mm. That, that's just never going to happen. Like every time something is said, a statement is made, a proposition is written, it's done by someone. Mm. And that someone is always someone in the full complexities of what it means to be someone. Um, and I think like just factually, that's not something someone can disagree with. Or, yeah. I, I'll, I'll, I'll die on that hill. And but Kant himself didn't go far. Like he didn't stick to that as much as he could have, mm. right? Because when you go to his ethics, he kind of does exactly that. He he thinks that if you just sit down and think hard enough. You can come up with statements that are going to be valid and true for everyone at all times in any situation. And that's how you should live your life. And some people have argued that there he's just making the exact mistake that he said can't, you know, we should stop making with his critique of, of metaphysics. And... So drawing the line to Derrida, um, I think of Nietzsche. Um, there's like a note, maybe it's one of his aphorisms, maybe it's a note, I don't remember, in his book, The, the Gay Science, um, The Joyous Science, where he says that Kant opened the cage walked outside, got too scared and went back in. Because <laughs> that's the whole thing with Nietzsche, right? Of like, let's get past these like good and evil 
kind of black and white view of the world, let's assume the fact that we are subjects, we are interpreting the world, we are deciding things and stop looking for, you know, a daddy in the sky who's going to authorize us to do what we want to do. And let's grow up. Let's be adults. And that's the whole thing of the death of God to him. And a lot more. Um, <laughs> right? I'm not saying I've exhausted the death of God there, but that's how I read it. Yeah. And to me, the Hidai is just kind of like taking those two very seriously. And then looking back at, you know, the Western tradition, you know, at some specific point. So he looks at Plato. He also looks a lot into literature um, and a lot of other things. He deals with Hegel. He deals with Kant. And he kind of tries to really get into the text deep enough where you can't deny the fact that that's a subject dealing with a, a world of objects like in a and even that is a very bad way of saying it but like he shows so if, if we go back to plato he shows how much when plato sits down and makes up a myth about the creation of the world mm-hmm. the fact that he's angry about how politics go in a, in athens is not divorced from that the fact that he doesn't like democracy is not divorced from that, right? The fact that he is, you know, Greek uh, and whoever Plato is, right? That it's all involved in the thing that he thinks he's doing by making statements about reality. Mm -hmm. And personally, I think that there's something very... There's an insight there that theology has always kind of taken seriously, Mm. which is that a real belief, and when I say theology, I mean Christian theology, right? The the tradition, uh, which is why we take dogma, we have taken dogma so seriously, which is the idea that a statement is never inconsequential, Right, if you stand on, if you believe X, there's a whole lifestyle and a whole political and social repercussion to believing in that X. And I think what the Hidat does is just take that backwards and be like, okay, let's look at X and let's look at the text, and I'm gonna show how how those things that you thought were hidden are not hidden. And they're all there. But you also have a really, no, you have like a really cool thing about Derrida's like person, like sense of self. Right, okay. Which like to me, I'm like, anything to do with identity politics, I'm like all over. Yes. Like terribly exciting. But like I also do nationalism sometimes. So like that's like to me like who you think you are and right. who you think your group is right is like fascinating right stuff to me but because all there was all kinds of stuff that I totally had no idea about and so please you're also telling me about it yes like 
Tell us all of it. Who Derrida thinks he may or may not be. Okay, so now I'm getting to what I'm actually going to spend the next two years um, writing about. Well, one year writing about. I still have classes to take. Um, so in that book, I mentioned that Bennington wrote about the Hida. So he let the Hida read it, and then Derrida wrote a response to it. And that response is in the book. They were published together. Mm. Uh, Bennington was not allowed to change what he wrote after the oh, Hida wrote his thing, right? It's, it's an, an agreement they made. And the Hida's text appears in the margins of the book. So they're like simultaneous. Yeah. And it's a kind of, it's a, like, the Hida is very playful. And that text is kind of like, I think the best way to describe it would be like stream of consciousness writing. Um, so he's basically, you know, there's a text that is extremely academic and <laughs> really putting things in the right boxes and saying things yeah, very clearly precisely. about like, this is the work of the Hida and this is what the Hida cares about, blah, 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 blah. And then the Hida just is an absolute clown and answers <laughs> with, to it with like stream of consciousness quoting from his own journals that we don't have access to Aww. and quoting St. Augustine and talking about very emotional, intimate stuff without, without explaining himself. Um, and he's making allusions and he's, you know, he's, he's dealing with his own philosophy and it's an extremely convoluted, difficult text, but also feels very, very intimate. Mm. And the title of the text is circumfession. So it's a like sir, like on. Um, so it's a play between. It's a word play between circumcision. Oh, like a C I R. Yes, C I R, oh. and confession, mm. because he quotes a lot from Saint Augustine's Confessions. And he draws a parallel between himself and Augustine in that text. Mm. And, but also, the thing he's confessing is that he's Jewish. And he is Jewish. Uh, Which I totally did not know about him <laughs> until you told me. And I was like, what? It's like, bomb so, enough. not only is he Jewish, he's also not French. He's Algerian. <laughs> So, Jacques Derrida is an Algerian Jew. Um, I'm pretty sure Sephardic, um, like the Spanish um, mm. family. And <clears throat> he is kind of like, he refers to, to himself as like the little black Arab Jew sometimes, which is how people saw him and, like, the people he's from in Algeria. Mm. And he was a teenager during the end of the war, Second War, and he goes to France in, like, the early post-war to for academia and stuff. And 
you know, his whole philosophy is about how I'm going to backtrack a lot and then I'll come back to this because I one has to. Um, so I was talking about essences, right? What is something? Yeah. And I talked about Kant and how we can't know it for sure. We only I can only say this is what it is to me, right? And but even then, that's taking Kant to its limits in a way that Kant himself didn't. Um, I'm just saying this because, like, I don't know. University people are going to listen to this and I'm oh, like, I don't want to fight. <laughs> um, but the other guy, important guy, is Hegel. And Hegel's whole thing is how identities are built on differences. So when you say what that something is, you're also implying what it isn't. But then you can go a step forward a step further and look into how it's also not not that hmm. and identity is always kind of a process we're always refining our concepts of what we think things are and Dehida kind of takes that into his his approach to things and he his whole philosophy is always picking up on some specific concept, an identity, a thing that we say, this is what that is. And he looks into how in order to have that concept functioning, there is usually something that a concept is like opposed to. So like one good example would be gender, right? What is a man? It's not a woman. When it really comes down to it, that's what it is. Because you can't, like in a pure, strict, logical sense, right? You probably disagree. <laughs> no, no. Um, <laughs> it's not. It depends on the context. Okay. But if you... Because, you know, there's, there's many things we can kind of try to ground ourselves on. Or like, oh, but this is the thing that really makes a man. And you're like, well, but you're saying women can't do that. No, I'm not then does it really make a man? No. Then what, yeah. what does, you know? And it always, that identity is always upheld by that difference. And usually there's a hierarchy. Usually when we talk about men and women, in the tradition at least, right? Mm -hmm. Men come first. Mm -hmm. And women don't barely figure at all. Exactly. Women are like an accessory to men. Mm -hmm. And and Dehida kind of like is going to deconstruct that a bit and be like, well, but... And maybe he himself does... He implies that. I'm not sure if he does that like very carefully, but I know um, Judith Butler, who I'm sure you know, she she's extremely Deridian. Like she mm. she builds on the Hida's method a lot, and it's the whole deconstruction thing, which is looking at you know the identity of what a man is, includes a lot of things that we would call feminine, mm -hmm. but it needs to exteriorize and in a way exclude those things, right? Like as a boy, how do you learn to be a man? 
by being told boys don't cry, you know, and be strong because girls are not strong, um, which is a, an absolute contradiction, right? Here's a boy who by, if we're going to have this like gender equals like the traditional, like you have a penis, you're a man, then he is a man. There's nothing that you can ever say to change that fact, but we raise him as if the fact that he's a man is always in danger and he needs to exclude and exteriorize and draw a line between feminine things and masculine things and affirm the masculinity in order to be really secure in his identity. So you have a whole level of identity that is much more than the biological facts. Oh, definitely. Right? And kind of the pattern there is that you have something that is exterior that if you deconstruct the identity, you find that the thing that it's negating, that is supposed to be outside, is always also inside. And there is something poetic and analogical to the experience of a Jew, right? The Jew was the outsider inside Europe all along. That, you know, anti-Semitism was all about, like, pushing the Jew out, you know, find where they're hiding and, you know, like, exterminate them, taking it to its limits. And Dehida knew that from a distance as a kid, right? He didn't, he was, he was in Algeria at the time. But then he's in France doing philosophy, dealing with the Western tradition that led to that point in history. Um, and he's also Algerian, right? And, and during his lifetime, Algeria goes to the war of independence against France. He's in France. And so he's talking about all these things that just seem like very external, like niche academic things about philosophy, like deconstructing identity and difference and writing and texts and all of that, that you're like, okay, who cares? Yeah. But then you're like, actually, he's also talking about his life and he's pointing out how the West has been terrible at dealing with differences, always looking to dominate it instead of just having it. Mm. And, and in circumfession, he he's talking about his his you know he's kind of playing saint augustine he's like i'm gonna remember my life and i'm gonna confess to someone who am i confessing to i'm not sure and you know his life is extremely philosophical so he deals with his philosophy in it but he's making these very intimate kind of avowals like he's confessing things and one of the points that most people who commented on that text go back to is when he mentions um, a question from his mother. Now, his mother, while he was writing the text, I believe she was terminally, terminally ill. Oh, no. Um, I am not sure what the details are yet. I will check all his biographies before writing my thesis. It's part of my work. There will be some um, but I'm not there yet. 
but he's very much expecting her death soon, but he, she's not dead yet. Mm. And much of what he's doing in the text is kind of dealing with her death ahead of time. He's mourning her ahead of time. And he wrote a lot about mourning in his career. And, you know, Judaism is passed through the line of the mother, yeah. like, right? And so his mother is also the anchor of his identity as a Jew. But he's this postmodern philosophy in France that everyone just thinks, oh, that's just a French philosopher. Mm-hmm. And he's dealing with the Western tradition, so everyone just assumes he's Christian. Hmm. Right? Just culturally Christian, if anything. And he can't deny that, right? He, he, he did get a Western education. He's not not Christian in that cultural sense. But he's also still a Jew. But also he decided not to circumcise his children. Because hmm. he's done with Judaism. Oh. And so you... <laughs> Did the mother of his children Jewish? I don't know. That would be my, my I to, question. I need to look into that. I, I need to do a lot of research yeah. still. But he's in that kind of liminal space between Judaism and Christianity. But also, he's kind of very much an atheist. And that was the question that his mother asked. And she asks, do you still believe in God? And he says in the text, like he doesn't, he doesn't say what he answered. But he says that when she asked him that question, she asked it because she knew that very rightly, he comes off as an atheist. <laughs> <laughs> And he's kind of emphasizing that middle ground of the identity that I have is largely built on who's perceiving it, Mm. right? There is a philosophical community to whom he needs to confess the fact that he's not Christian, he's Jewish. Mm. There's also his mother who's like, you're not Jewish anymore, you're becoming an atheist. And she's not wrong. Mm. But then what is he? Does, does, is he even anything, right? What, what does he mean? And he mm. says that even though he doesn't, like he says that the answer he would have to give her would be a no. Right? You still believe in God? No. But it would be a no because she wouldn't understand if he tried to explain to her the fact that he still prays. Mm. And that he still weeps when he's praying. So I take that as he's deconstructing the thing we call religious identity. And I want to spend a year writing on it. Yeah, I know. But I think that's like, I don't know. I have a lot of trouble with like the, do you believe in God? And that's what makes you a religious person. I don't think that's bullshit. <laughs> this is not how anybody does the things. Like, no people. Anyway, and educate, like, I don't know. Seemingly, like, within my, in my own community, right? Which is, like, Roman Catholic, Anglophone, youth in Montreal at the moment, at least. Um, youthish. Um, 
where it's like it becomes this like boogeyman where it's like if you don't have the right propositions and if you right. don't like feel the right things at the right times, right. you're like not a real Christian. Like you're not a real religious person. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's some fucking bullshit. I don't know. Like, <laughs> what does that have to do? Like, that's so it's so much more than that. Like, you're kidding me. Like, not even to go into the like any whatever, however one might relate to God or gods or whatever. They're transcendent, superhuman things, non-human things. Mm-hmm. Like your community, even just the way we do community, right? Like what does it have to do with like, oh, can you answer this yes or no black and white question like right here and right now? And if you can't, you're not in the community. Mm-hmm. Like bite me. That has nothing to do with anything. Anyway, that's a personal phone. No, no, I, I, I relate, <laughs> right? Because I, I've, I can't say I've never been Catholic because I was baptized as a baby and my mom but my mom became evangelical when I was like two years old. So I don't have oh, memories okay. of being Catholic. Yeah, I know. Um, but legally, I, right? Canonically. Canonically, yeah. I think I am. You, you would be one of us. <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can be buried in, in one of your cemeteries. Yes, you could. If you um, have one you liked. <laughs> <laughs> and those things matter. Hmm. Right? Um, like we... I think our very like liberal way of thinking today forgets that those things do matter, mm. right? Like, I have a bunch of close friends who their their field is death and death oh, studies, cool. and <clears throat> who gets buried where and how and why, and it's a huge financial burden for a lot of families, yeah. right? Um, but it's not distant history. Like the church has actual power. And those markers of like, you know, as, as liberal people in the broad sense of like living in 2022. Um, in a North American city. Right. In like in the classical philosophical liberal sense, mm. uh, we like to think of religion as this private thing. Mm-hmm. But it's never been a private thing. Oh yeah, I know. Right, and just like, just like Plato's philosophy was political. Um, you know, when when your community is asking you, "Do you believe in God?" Yeah. The implication is, "Are you welcome here?" Mm-hmm. Right, and which is an awful implication. It's an awful implication. And it's totally inaccurate. But it's also kind of necessary right we have institutions for a reason yeah but it's kind of like gatekeeping i don't know yes like it's like but it's like not like the good it's like i don't know i don't know i don't like right right i think it's i think it's illegitimate i think it's like saying that you have to like i don't know because community is so much bigger and more complicated than like what you believe in any particular instance Right. I don't know. And that's the issue with, that's the ambiguity of like institutions in general. Because you're like, 
Um, like we gatekeep for a reason. We think we do, at least. Yes. <laughs> and everyone kind of has limits of we think like that's okay this is where you you draw the line right like you know i don't know my limit is nazis like i think okay. punching nazis is morally right <laughs> and i will like so all those movies where you need that. like a, a generic <laughs> bad guy and you're like, okay let's pull out the nazis <laughs> yes and <clears throat> You know, like we, we all draw the line somewhere and having a community usually implies wanting to make the community safe, mm -hmm. wanting to make sure that everyone is on the right page, right? Like if I'm going to get up and go join a meeting and put my effort into doing something and making it happen, I want to make sure that people there are going to appreciate it. Mm -hmm. So That's the opposite of academia. <laughs> <laughs> but also not right why why, uh, why anyone's going to appreciate it i don't know that's, that's an ask <laughs> i mean we do right which is why we, we try to appreciate doing. each other but i'm not totally certain we can expect that of like of the community the academic community at large right right i feel like the most you can expect out of them is silence or condescension but yes <laughs> and it's it's an extremely like toxic culture and it's, but it's built on this ideal about, you know, we're all people pursuing knowledge and things like that. And we all kind of are on board with that. But then we live in a world that doesn't make that possible anymore, right? Hmm. Like capitalism is just kind of devouring. Everywhere. Yeah, it's just devouring everything, right? So if it's not profitable, it's not worth doing. Mm -hmm. Which is why you have such high rates of, you know, depressed scholars and um, just generally mental, mentally ill people in academia because yeah. we don't pay people enough to live well. And we live in a world that tells you if you're not making money, you're not worth anything. Um. <laughs> no, it's just, I, I was thinking about this the other day because like what? Like, just like the, like you think about our industry compared to other people's industries, right? And like, I, I hear other people say things, they say things and it kind of makes no sense to me, but they say things like the cost benefit analysis of taking another degree. Right. And I'm like, what does that even mean? <laughs> like, but like, will it help them? Like the degree has a goal with the job. Right. At the end of it. And I'm like, does, does is there a job at the end of it? Who even knows? Right. Like, it's insane. And like people being like, <laughs> oh, if, if I take extra degrees, I deserve to earn a higher salary. Yes. Like they should pay more for me because I took the extra time and did all these extra graduate stuff. Yes. Right. And I'm like, what? Where is this a thing? This is not a thing here. Like, anyway, that's it. I mean, so sometimes I reflect on this. Like, sometimes on my way to or from work at restaurant, where I'm, I'm the dishwasher at a restaurant. Very mm -hmm. nice restaurant downtown. Excellent team. I love them. They're perfect people. It's the easiest job in the restaurant. And they're just, like, the loveliest team of guys I've ever met. Um, 
But it's also like, this is not at all how our world works. No. Like, not even a little bit. Yeah. And... <sighs> like... One of my favorite words... And of course, right, I'm, I'm the postmodern um, person trying to destroy Western civilization. Um, well, it's, doing, it's, it's doing a really good job of destroying itself. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, if anything, I think you're trying to save it. Um, but I like salvage bits. <laughs> yes. Like ideology in like a very strict sense, not as a ideology as like propaganda like manipulation kind of terrible stuff people do um but in a very strict sense of the realm of ideas that always give us a lens through which we experience reality through okay, yeah right because it's not i am not because that, that's the level that like you know Descartes was also wrong um, which is, I am, yes, I am a subject. I am experiencing objects. But as soon as I try to say, as soon as I start asking any question and being like, what is this? I am presupposing a lot of things. And Descartes thought that, you, you know what I'm talking about, the mm. whole, like, I, I am, therefore I exist. Like, I think, therefore I am. Right, and the cat thought that when he said that he got to the bottom of it. Right, I, I, am solving philosophy right now. He had his atom, his indivisible bit. Yes, and the problem there is that when you say "I think, therefore I am," you're already presupposing to start language. Right, you're presupposing the whole categories that your words have some meaning. And those meanings have, they mean something to someone else other than you. The implied reader. Right? Like you, you, you always, like no human being comes into this world by themselves. No, they're always in relation. Yes. Even when we write our diaries. Yes. Right. And so like, that is like the realm of, ideology is like there's there's a whole set of ideas that we don't even realize are there mm. even though they're there all the time and so yeah the whole like like you know capitalism as a system is like it's mostly in our heads like it, it exists because we believe in it it's, it's not real in the like empirical sense right there's nothing you can point to and be like that's capitalism it's a belief system and when people say what is a job and what is it for and what makes a good job versus a bad job, right? Those are ideas that we treat as if they are real and we live with them and we enforce them and we punish each other for not conforming to them all the time. We let people die because of them. Mm -hmm. And it, it's literally in our heads, <laughs> <laughs> which doesn't mean it's fake. Yeah. Right, because we are living it. Um, 
anyways, that that it kind of goes into the whole like the thing that the Hidai is kind of trying to underline is like those hidden ideas that are there. Um, and yeah, there's something very like in, in another lifetime, I would love to just write like a theology of capitalism, <laughs> just being like, what is the belief system that people that like holds this yeah. together, right? What are the dogmas? Like, because you, you, what you're saying is true, like academics, like especially in fields like religious studies, right? We feel like outcasts, like we're, we're usually heretics, not just in our traditions, but <laughs> also towards society and the belief that we need to be making money. Yeah, and that our worth is related to yes. our salaries. And, <laughs> and some of us never see it for what it is right that the fact that our worth being tied to money like that's not it's not there's not a pure form out there right there's like you can you can make your worth you can decide what you you want to live your life based on you can't decide it like the cat you're not alone you're not in an island Right, you're, recognition you're dealing with yeah. other people, and that's why it's hard, because you need to do things that people recognize. You need to do things in a way that they understand, yeah. that they appreciate. You don't want to be alone. I don't think anyone does. But you also don't want to just be unquestioning, obedient to a system that chews you up and spits you out. Yeah. Even when you play by their rules. <laughs> That's right. I have no great love of capitalism either. I, yeah. I think it, it does a lot of... It does a well, I mean... I think it would be wrong to say that, like... Well, because, I mean, all of the things I've enjoyed in my life come from that system, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's every advantage mm-hmm. I've ever had mm-hmm. comes from that. Uh, the schools I went to, the like food I ate, the clothes I wore, like all these. It's not like I'm somehow outside of it, right? Um, but I'm critical of it. I think right. it has serious, serious feelings. Right. Um, you, I mean, you can only criticize it because you understand it, right? Like, yeah, you're. But also, like, within it, from a position of privilege within it, right? Mm -hmm. It's hard to criticize it when, like, you don't have the, like, emotional, financial, like, mental space, breathing room to do it. Right. You're too busy surviving. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's another thing, too, why politics are so hard, because, like, as as against the system we can be, we also need to recognize that, like, 
most often people are trying their best. Yeah. And it's like, even when I think they're monsters. <laughs> yes. And I think that that's the ambiguity with, so I'm really into the like French postmodern philosophers like uh, Derrida and Foucault and Deleuze and, you know, all the, all the big scary boogeymen that if you're a good, good Christian and conservative, you need to stay away from them. Um, yeah. And I think they are just very deeply misunderstood. Um, partly because of that dynamic of identities that are very deeply insecure because they are built on, like I was talking about men and women before, right? There is a hierarchy of domination that holds the identity together as we know it. And we feel like if we undermine that hierarchy, we undermine the identity. And if we lose what we are and we're used to weak identities always being dominated, that means that we are under threat and we are going to be dominated, mm. right? Um, and it's this perception of, of difference always being an occasion for violence as opposed to, to understanding. And, but I think that those, those philosophers, uh, those three in particular, which are the ones that I'm, I'm more familiar with, Derrida, Foucault, and Deleuze, they're kind of getting at that, but they're trying to understand it first. So you have like Foucault, for example, talking about power. And especially in English academia, uh, in the English world in general, which like the translations of Foucault were pretty bad. Mm. Um, there's this view that he's just this like angry person who thinks that every institution is evil because there's power everywhere and power is always domination and oppression. Mm. And, you know, they see the kind of identity politics of today as just being a terrible consequence of that, of like everyone just wants to be oppressed all the time and you can't say anything anymore. Um, that kind of discourse. And it's like, well, sure, but also no, right? Because we need to understand power, right? You can't say that between a professor and a student, there's no power dynamic. You know, sure. you can't say that the government doesn't have power. You can't or that say they're equal. Yeah, or that they're equal. And you can't say that like when you're you know, you're at a doctor, your doctor doesn't have power over you. He does. It's objectively. Right? That person can kill you by accident and you're trusting them to do Gosh. the right thing. Yeah. But power exists because we as humans, we love to make things and build things and, and foster the things we love. And the way to do that is by intervening in the world and doing something and exercising our power. So yes, like everything we do is power all the time. Power dynamics are everywhere. But no one 
but like he never demonized it mm. right and we only demonize it because we're insecure about the fact that we have power and going back to like politics we were talking about like criticizing capitalism and everything right like so many people are like yeah capitalism sucks and they just go into a very fucked up kind of nihilism mm. of like yeah politics sucks and I'm, I'm you know I'm just not gonna bother you can't do it at all and I can't like what's the point and it's like well that's that's a very dumb way of going about it right because it's like the system is together because a lot of people have put a lot of effort and they continue to put effort on it and we still have plenty of people around and you have efforts to put somewhere yeah. right so the fact that there's power dynamics and the fact that there's domination and stuff is not a reason to just wash our hands off of it because we can't yeah it's a question of getting involved right like yes i am in a capitalist system and that's why i wanted to change right yes i i have all these privileges and but i also know that i have them because people across the planet are being exploited and yeah. i want that to stop so i will use power like power is is the human thing tell us that it's a tool and even that, even like, I don't know, like in power, in relationship, like, surely there's a way to have a healthy dynamic, right? And I don't know, maybe this is just me as an aspiring mm-hmm. educator, mm-hmm. right? Like if I am, like everything that is wrong with the university and all the abuses that are rampant all kinds of places, uh, like in all kinds of ways, like corners of the university. But like, hopefully there is a way to do it that is healthy and responsible, dare I say it, uh, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. If I can, <clears throat> uh, one more Dehida anecdote uh, thing. So one of his famous texts is called Plato's Pharmacy. And he's looking at Plato's, um, one of his texts where he talks the most about writing and what's wrong with writing. And in that text, there's this analogy that keeps coming up about writing, about words as children and of the you know, of the self as a, as a father, by the Logos, as this masculine father figure. All of us? Yes. <laughs> and, All selves everywhere? I mean, to the extent that women have any of it, right? They have a little bit. Um, <laughs> That's my favorite. Though. I was like, who's self? Who's self? <laughs> Do I get to have selfness? Exactly, <laughs> a little bit, right? Like, we can't deny that you speak words. I don't know if you understand them. It's true. But <laughs> um by they the, make sounds at least. Yes. <laughs> um but like so the self has this father figure and then we speak words and the words are like children. 
And those children are going out into the world to represent us. And the spoken word is a word that can represent the father well because, and it's not going to shame the father, because if someone doesn't understand something, they can ask and then the father can still answer. And there's because there's dialogue, hmm. the possibility of representation is much, much more accurate. So the chances of the father being ashamed out of it at the end of, of a discussion is, is much lower. Whereas writing is a very dumb child. Writing mm -hmm. is a child that is away from the father, right? Some, someone can read a text in any context without the author being nearby. And the whole idea of writing is that so it's independent of the, fa of the father, of the author. But that independence also makes it helpless and alone because if someone doesn't understand it and thinks, oh, this is just dumb, mm -hmm. then the text can't argue back. The text can't answer any questions or anything like that. And that's kind of what Plato talks about in, in his text. And then, anyways, there's a lot that goes on there. Um, but Derrida kind of deconstructs that analogy. Um, and he says things about, about writing, but I think also the, he's also making a statement about the family and fatherhood and why do you have children? Hmm. Um, which is kind of the thing of, you know, if you, if your words are only good enough when you're around to answer them, are they really that good? Right? Or are you the kind that can like write well enough that people don't need to go back to, hmm. to the father to, check in, is this really what you meant? Because you said what you meant. And you can trust it. Like raising competent children. Yes. And so... And also the idea that if, if a family is... Right? Some of these things that he does says explicitly, some not. So this is like my reading of it. But like... The idea of... Like every father kind of wants to be a grandfather in a way, right? There's this idea that your children are going to grow up and take your place. Mm. There's a fear also that your children are going to take your place. And that, that's something that he talks about. There's a, a threat of parricide of like your, your children are going to turn back and kill you. And that's like all over Greek tragedy. So it was... Oedipus. Yes. Um... And connecting this back to like my thesis that I, I'm going to write. After Circumfession was published, the Hida was in an interview and someone asked, oh, so you wrote Circumfession and there you say your mother asks if you believe in God and you answer it, but you're not clear 
saying that you don't, but like you still pray. What does that mean? Can you talk? Can you explain that to us? And he does answers. I don't know who wrote that text. I don't know who the I in that text is. And of course, whatever that means, right? But my take, my reading of that is that he's emphasizing the point that he's doing the opposite of the thing that he's always pointing at in the Western philosophy, in the Western tradition, which is this whole dynamic of hierarchy and domination. And he's like, well, the way the Western tradition sees a text is that there is a hierarchy between the author and the text, and the author dominates the text, yeah. and the text cannot speak for itself. And if you ever read something in the text that is not what the author meant, you are wrong. Yeah, and, need to and be the crushed. text isn't perfect. Right. And, and he's doing the opposite. He's saying, well, actually, like, like, yeah, of course he's the one who wrote the text, right? Of course he, he meant something when he wrote it. But also, first, he's a competent writer. And second, the text is published. He's not going to yeah. go back and change it. You want to understand it better, read it better. And, and if you take as parent and children and all of that, you know, there's, there's a view of raising children and education that is like, how, what it is to raise someone new, hmm. right? What is it like to deal with an identity that is different, right? A little self that looks a lot like you. But somehow it's still totally But somehow different. it's different, who might turn one day and kill you, <laughs> right? And to raise that person towards equality, towards autonomy, and not towards obedience. Hmm. Um, and yeah, I think that there's a whole like political tone. I mean, I, he says so, like there's a whole political tone to, to his philosophy that I think is very, very important. And I think like when it comes to religion and, you know, interreligious dialogue mm -hmm. and apologetics, right? Christians, like yes. conservative Christians love apologetics. I've loved... well, I love their style of apologetics at least. Right. And when I, when I talk of conservative Christians, I, I don't exclude myself. Like, I was extremely evangelical for most of my years, and I'm very familiar with it. And I, I talk of apologetics because I've done apologetics. Mm -hmm. And, but like, there, there's this hard belief in someone is going to come out on top, someone yeah. is going to win. Who's right? And it's like, well, Maybe one person is closer to reality than the other. But what's the implication of that? Mm. Right? Do, I, do I need to burn down mosques? Because my identity so as, a, as, a, as a Christian right, is threatened? Because mm. if that's the case, that's a very weak identity. That's mm. very insecure. And or do I need to police specific neighborhoods? Exactly. To watch people. It's another one of my favorites. 
Like if my religion says this thing is bad and I don't want to practice, do I need the arm of the law to make it illegal and punish people for it? Am I securing Depends my identity? Yeah. <laughs> Depends on what it is. Yep. I don't know. Yeah, to me, but like... Yeah. Anyway, there's brawls all over that question. Right. To me. But especially in North America. Uh, but it's also like, there's such a forgetting of self involved with that like the idea that there is a public reason beyond that is in theory at least is legitimate and like all citizens can agree and like is convincing right. um, and that it is unconnected to our situatedness our particular circumstances mm -hmm. like who i am who my family is mm -hmm. right that somehow we the way to have a truly equal, well, I shouldn't say that, the way to have, the way we should order society involves a fundamental forgetting of those things. It has to, like yes. the whole like, veil yes. of ignorance yes, thing. Yes, yes. Like, where it's like, I need to get yes. away from those things in order to protect them. Mm -hmm. And it's like, what? Mm -hmm. That's like, I don't know, there's like something of the selfness that's like you can't be like, okay, I need to imagine that I don't have these things, but then I'm not really me. So you need to not be you and then still somehow think. Yes. And I'm like, how does that happen? Who right. is doing this? Right. What are they? How can they? How can you possibly know what that person would want? Like, anyway. Yeah, no, you're. There's a lot in there. It's the whole like Kantian thing of. Can I sit down on my armchair and think for everybody? Yeah. And he says no, but then he does it. <laughs> right? And, and I think that's the side that... That's the one aspect where... Um, they die, and I, and I like him a lot for it, is in one sense ultra Kantian because he really mm. affirms that no but also very close to Hegel in the sense that you can't ju jump start the process you mm. can't sit down and be like let's make a fair society and boom it's done like wow right no there's history in the middle yeah and the only way to know what someone thinks is to let them speak mm. And back to the text thing. What does a text say? Read the text. <laughs> <laughs> That's and like leaving the door open to funnier things happening than even the author might have known about. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's really important. And that's something I really I love Derrida for. Like mm -hmm. the like that like there's weird there's weird shit going down mm -hmm. and like and that's okay. And you need to, like, you need to leave that door open. Mm -hmm. Like, but even, like, when you're thinking, like, even about, like, yourself, and, like, other people, and it's, like, sometimes you don't know everything that's going on. Mm -hmm. And, like, there's, there's no universe where, like, you're absolutely, totally in control and aware of all the things at all the times, like, intimately, like, yeah. precisely determining all the things. 
Like, that's just not how, that's not how life works. No. At all. For anybody, I think. It's like, it's the whole thing with, uh, you know, relationships, whatever. When someone knows a little bit of psychoanalysis and is like the whole whole deal with like, how, you know, my ideal of a woman is built on my mom and my ideal of a, fa- of a man is built on my father. And there's all the complexities and issues that rise <laughs> from that. And uh, last night I was reading um, Bell Hooks, um, her book all about love. And she talks about how in her first big relationship, her first marriage, I think, Like, she, she's always had a terrible relationship with her dad. Mm. Her dad was just, like, unavailable, unemotional, didn't... I mean, not an emotional, but, like, zero emotional intelligence. You know, very classical dude type. Mm. Um, too busy working. Can't express feelings for his life. And so she always had that longing, but also animosity towards him. Right? Mm. And then she meets this guy and starts dating the guy. And she brings him home for the first time to, like, meet her sisters and everything. And all her sisters' reaction are just like, I'm very impressed at how much he's like that. He's just like that. And she's like, what are you talking about? There's nothing of that (laughs) in him. And it was like 10, 15 years later when she finally divorced the guy because, indeed, he was just like her father. And, you know, the whole thing of, like, There's something about the process that we can't quite skip, mm. you know, like, and I don't say that in a eschatological sense of like whatever Hegel and maybe Marx had in mind of like, as if we know where things are going, because mm. we don't know where things are going. That's, that's the postmodern response. Like, we don't know where it's going. Like, Marx, you have no clue what's the future. Hegel, you have no clue and what's the future. And it's not as linear. Yeah, but there is a process, and that yeah. process is like, you know, like, don't hide in a cave because you're scared of making mistakes. Yeah. But also, when the mistakes happen, you don't need to deny, like, be in denial either. Just grow up, get out of the relationship, right? Um, and I think that's the same thing with politics. Like, I think it's dumb to have this mindset of, like, Two, three hundred years ago, these guys wrote this thing, and that is the truth. Oh my goodness! Right? Because that's like, no, these guys had no totally clue the what the world is like today. As an American, yes, they like refer to the founding fathers as like these like prophet like people. Yeah, and like they they like why? Yeah. But what did they? What did they mean? And I'm like, what do you mean? What did they mean? Like, and then and then someone uh, says, so oh. Caught on it. Someone says, oh, but they, they were just white slave owners. Why, why would you care what they have to say? Yeah. Maybe don't ask them. And then the answer is, that's un-American. Uh. Right? But it's like, but it's true. Yeah. And you care about the truth. What are you going to do with the truth? Right? Um, so it's like, yeah, we, it's okay that the process happens. Right? Like... We don't need to say America has always been bad and we're all terrible. Let's just blow up this, this country. Like, no. But Americans can come together and say, 
we've done this. Now let's try something new. Let's make new mistakes. God damn it. Yeah. It probably will still be the same ones over and over again, but at least try. It takes be time. A little innovative. Yep. I'm really excited to read the thesis oh, one day. Thank you. That'll be fun. So to be very formal about it. So what I want the thing I'm going to write a about. It's thesis, right? It is a thesis. Yes. Okay. In French, it would be a memoir because they make a difference. Um, but so the thing I'm going to write is how the deconstruction of his religious identity is tied to the mourning of his mother mm. and how one thing kind of speaks to the other. In, and I'm looking to argue that that had like a therapeutic effect. Mm. Like it made him feel better. Um, cause that's, I think relevant to the whole field of spirituality, which is why I think that's worth doing in a religious studies department. Huh. <laughs> and not like what other department would you see yourself in? Maybe philosophy. Okay. But no, I think religious studies is more appropriate. Gets more freedom. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what I love about religious studies departments. It's methodologically plural. Yes. Although it leads to some interesting schizophrenia. But <laughs> it also leads to so many more options. I don't know. <coughs> the more tools in your toolbox, the better off you are, I think. Yes. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you.